Keep your suppliers compliant with the Ideal Supplier Scorecard. Join Two Babes and Bill from Cascade on episode 23. This is Two Babes Talk Supply Chain, where we interview the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about best practices, changes in the industry, and hot topics in supply chain. We answer all your questions and put sexy into supply chain. We are your hosts, Sarah and Nick. Welcome back to Two Babes Talk Supply Chain. And today, Nick is back with us, and we are in studio talking with Paul Condeco about the most common blind spots in your supply chain. Paul Condeco is Manager of Business Development and Strategic Sales at Ice Corp Logistics. He has been in the industry for over 20 years, working for some of the leading companies in customs, logistics, and last mile delivery. Thanks, Paul, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. We are excited to chat about what the blind spots are that our audience should be looking at in the supply chain. So let's get started. Excellent. Excellent. So what are some of the reasons we have blind spots in our supply chain? I mean, anecdotally, I think um, there has been a general trend in a lot of industries, the retail industry, the manufacturing industry, um, with an emphasis on speed to market. So with that emphasis... um, because of the speed and when you look at when you're looking at speed you're looking at examples like let's say the fashion industry um speed to market is now critical to be able to be competitive as an example like zara uh, when you're looking at companies that let's give an example of the, the clothing industry when you're looking at an example of a company going from a design perspective, a couple of weeks after a fashion show, to design, uh, manufacture, sourcing, manufacturing, uh, distribution, uh, sorry, um, exportation, distribution of product. And this is all happening within months, a couple of months. Not That's even in, anymore. No. Like, it's it's almost it, to weeks, a matter of days yeah, sometimes. Absolutely. It's, mm-hmm. it's a matter of weeks now. Um, speed to market is critical, but at the same time, not all companies can do it well. Zara is a really good example of a company that does it exceptionally well. But for every Zara, there is a lot of examples of companies that don't do it well. And, re- and really, I think one of the key points is the um, the discipline to do it and really take a, a good approach on managing managing what's happening in the supply chain and having a solid supply chain. Having a pulse on it, you know what I mean? Like really being able to see it as a whole. But I just think sometimes that things go by, like our days go by so fast that there's so many good intentions and you want to take a look at so many different things. But Sometimes it's just not possible. Well, absolutely. And then and then you've got um, even in situations where companies uh, might be planning and do put all the appropriate planning in place. Well, you have to execute that plan. Um, so when you're looking at the people in procurement and they've got an idea of what their anticipated costs are going to be and then they actually follow through with the design and the sourcing and everything. And then somewhere along the lines, um, the execution is a bit lacking and the lack of discipline. That's where a lot of the what I call cost creep gets into your uh, gets into your supply chain. What's a cost creep? Well, that's (laughs) well, it's not some shady fat guy or anything like that. It's um, a a cost creep is unanticipated. 
implications in your supply chain where things literally are creeping in from a cost perspective that you might not have foreseen per se, but and it wasn't even budgeted, but it's definitely drifting into it. So, so Paul, what are the most common blind spots? Well, on my with my experience and over almost twenty years of, of doing this, a lot of the examples that I've seen, um, where you know people in the shipping community or the freight industry, so some of the examples would be in dealing with. Um, the like cubic weight, dimensional weight, um, uh, not utilizing uh, not utilizing capacity when you're moving cargo. Um, some other examples would be not managing the free trade agreements correctly, and that's because of my customs background. Uh, another example would be end use provisions, and we can talk about that in a little while. Um, and end use provisions. At, uh, is an opportunity um, to reduce your landed costs. And and lastly, you know, regulation is obviously another uh, another common blind spot where people aren't paying attention to what's going on. And a good example of that is SOLAS, uh, which is a piece of legislation that was passed last year and implemented in 2016. So uh, why don't we start with maximizing capacity utilization? So why aren't companies doing that um you know, why aren't they doing that? How can they sort of do it better or maybe keep an eye out for that as a blind spot? Yeah, I think in a lot of industries, especially the manufacturers where they there's a, a high level of metrics involved, um, they're doing it. Um, but with less sophisticated importers and exporters, they aren't necessarily doing it. And and I think let's, you know, we'll, we'll talk about obviously the, uh, the capacity utilization. So the, the whole idea is that when you're purchasing goods internationally or, or, or by truck, it doesn't really matter, uh, you are moving cargo in trucks and you're envisioning, hey, I'm buying a full truck of material. I'm buying a full container of material, uh, of product. Well, what does full mean? So when, you know, when I say full, when you open a container um, and you have all these pallets of material in an ocean container and you have all that nice big, you know, a lot of empty spots at the top of the container. Well, that's unutilized space. So and it's the same and it's applicable also to, to full truckloads. If you're moving a full truckload and you're putting in 26 pallets and they might be six foot pallets. Well, all you're also paying for the additional three or four feet that's above it. That's empty space. So, yeah, especially if it's like if the pallets aren't stackable. That's right. I mean, I guess um, I guess a comparison would be like a lot of containers that come from Europe, uh, the product is palletized. And so there's a lot of empty space. However, when you get a full container from the Far East, you're looking at floor loaded. That's right. And non-palletized. So what you're saying is, you know, almost to adopt more of that mentality of, of, you know, how we ship from the Far East being floor loaded and, and not on pallets if you can to really maximize and, and utilize the space from floor to ceiling in a container. Absolutely. And and uh, surprisingly, it, it's a, a lot of it has to do with load planning. Uh, and there's even load planning software that you can buy to determine what is the best way to, um, to load cargo into an ocean container or, or a truck. Because um, you can imagine that if you're accustomed to a certain volume of container freight, for example, and you're utilizing, let's say, 80% of that container. So, I mean, on the surface, it looks full. But 
If you were able to increase it from 80% to 95%, you can actually see an actual cost reduction of your transportation cost because you're utilizing that container more effectively mm -hmm. and thus reducing the amount of containers that you're actually using. So you're you're not nickel and diming from a, you know, how much how you know, you're not worried about the individual cost of each container at that point. You're worrying about holistically what your business is going to what your business is going to cost from a transportation perspective if you can literally eliminate containers or eliminate trailers so does that blind spot come from um the company relying on the carriers to load properly or their suppliers to load properly are they not taking enough advantage of you know um giving that feedback and telling their suppliers, because obviously it's kind of blind, right? Especially if you're importing from overseas and you're not actually uh, loading the truck or the container yourself. Um, you know, is it worthwhile to take the reins and say, hey, you better make sure that you get this amount of product in there? I mean, obviously you gotta you gotta be aware of damage too, right? How it's being loaded and stuff like that. But maybe that's you know a solution. Um, to that blind spot is to really get more involved with the supplier, maybe go there and watch how they load a container and maybe make suggestions on how they can utilize that space a little bit more. That is absolutely good advice. And to kind of go further with that, I mean, there are already services in the industry, in the logistics and transportation industry that do the, that very fact. So um, if let's imagine that you're a company here in Canada and you are dealing with and, and purchasing from various manufacturers in China, um, and let's say that your orders are such that you don't necessarily need a full container load. Maybe it's, you know, 20 cubic meters or whatever. In that case, it might make perfect sense to leverage your partnership with your logistics provider, your transportation provider, to do what's called a buyer's console. So your buyer's con uh, the buyer's console, in essence, is grabbing all those LTL, sorry, LCL shipments, consolidating them in a container um, to maximize the utilization of that container. And then really using the experience of your logistics partner to leverage and increase the utilization of that container. So yeah, that literally guess, you can reduce the amount of containers that you're importing. Yeah, sorry. And then to the, further to that point is also to take a look at, like if you have enough cargo to fill a 20-foot container, I'll say quote-unquote fill a 20-foot container depending on how you're loading it, um, 20-foot containers are not always the most economical if you don't have heavy cargo and might be a good idea to look at LCL as an option and price them both out to see which one works better for your business as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's been it, anecdotally, depending on the market, uh, generally speaking, if you're bringing cargo from, from China, the break-even point that it makes sense to go uh, LCL versus a full container is somewhere between 20 to 30 cubic meters. Mm -hmm. So if you're moving somewhere between 20 and 30 cubic meters, for the most part, you're better off moving that cargo LCL. Mm -hmm. But in the context of the utilization, mm -hmm. I, you, you have to imagine that these 3PLs and these freight forwarders, they're doing that already as part of their consolidations. 
if if you don't have your own buyer's console, they're doing that in terms of trying to maximize space in their containers. And and obviously it's 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 a bit serving because they want to obviously have a high level of efficiency because it actually means dollars in their pockets. Mm-hmm. But if you are the if you're organizing a buyer's console or have a partnership with someone doing a buyer's console, well it's to their benefit, absolutely. Reduce mm-hmm. the amount of containers that you can import with the same amount of commodity. Right. How is dimensional weight a blind spot? Well, I- interestingly, um, dimensional weight impacts um, specifically two segments of the transportation industry, uh, the courier industry and the LTL industry. Wait, before you get started, what is dimensional weight? Just yeah, for was, our audience, oh, just was, in case. I should have reworded Just that. in case. Sorry, I'm nerdy and I think that everybody knows this stuff. <laughs> so uh, dimensional weight is the relationship that um, a product or a, a shipment has from a weight to a size or volume perspective. So in most in in most of these transportation companies, they they have a metric. They obviously they measure the length, the width, and the height of a commodity, and then they affix a certain cube factor, uh, which means let's example that for every cubic foot of space, let's say that standard cargo is ten pounds per cubic foot. So that's that's and then they use that that calculation to determine what the dimensional weight of a shipment is. So and which one's uh, greater that's over right. whether it's the weight or the dimensional weight, and that's what they base their pricing on. Absolutely. Right. So if you've got okay. in theory, you've got a you're moving a product that has one cubic foot of space and it weighs an actual weight of six pounds because of the cube factor of approximately 10 pounds per cubic foot, they will charge you 10, uh, uh, based on the 10 pounds, right. even though it only weighed six. Mm-hmm. So it's something that you have to think about. So in, in, I've already kind of given some examples, but it's really relevant in the LTL industry and, and the courier industry. So from the, uh, from the LTL industry, Whenever you were moving shipments on an LTL basis, be it domestic or international. LTL being less than truckload. Less than truckload. uh, You have to be very cognizant of how you load that that pallet. So if you're loading a pallet in what something looks like a pyramid of Giza, that's not a good idea because what you're doing, and remember that these companies are basing their dimensional weight on the the widest, on the longest, and on the highest point on that pallet, and then affixing a, cur- a certain cube uh, cube per pound or mm-hmm. per uh, cubic foot. Um, in the United States, they have a, something called, it's a class system, so they try to have objectively um, organize cargo based on a class, but that's not a perfect system either, to be perfectly honest. Um, in the courier perspective, uh, couriers have gotten a lot smarter in the last 15 years. Um, when you're looking at an in- the integration of high-speed uh, conveyor belts that are supplemented with peripherals like scanning equipment and specifically laser measurement equipment that are able to transfer that information to a scan box, um, courier companies are not missing revenue anymore uh, when it, when you're looking at a, a cubic, uh, you're looking at the dim- a dimensional weight of cargo. Uh, at one point, they used to rely on honesty, and they you'd write you write down a number as to what that weight would be, and Nick. they would bill you on that. Yeah, I can tell you that some of the big companies don't do that any longer. <laughs> so. Um, 
so it, it's a cost creep because if you haven't put any forethought into uh, how you're packaging or how you're putting together a pallet or what the weight of a box is relative to its size, mm-hmm. you're going to be surprised when you get your invoices from that courier company. So Well, not only that, I think that packaging would also kind of affect that, right? So when you're... When you're thinking about the your product and you're thinking about, you know, it's going to go over the road, it's going to go over the ocean, it's going to go in an airplane, you know, you've got to consider damage. You've got to also consider how it's packaged. And that packaging could actually bring up the height, bring out the weight, you know, bring up uh, the, the width, sorry, and bring out the length, potentially, depending on how it's packaged and, and what you've done. So there's a couple of different things, I think, here that needs to be considered um, that would have the effect on the dimensional weight. But you're completely right. I mean, there's a huge difference between that. And Absolutely, yeah. everybody needs to know that, you know, how it's being calculated um, so that there is no surprises later on. That's right. And it's, and it's um, I mean, you kind of alluded to it, but part of the product design uh, portion, when, when companies are designing their product and designing the packaging, they should be cognizant of it. They should be mm-hmm. cognizant of what is the logistics or transportation implication of designing a product in the, in the manner of how it is. Um, I love that. That's a great point. You know, you, mm-hmm. you look at, I mean, a, a great example uh, in terms of the reduction of costs and, and the such. You look at the detergent industry, uh, companies like Tide, for example. Um, I remember growing up, you know, the, the Tide jugs that you would get for the detergents were huge. And somehow they kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller, but the amount of liquid that you would actually, or detergent that you would actually need per wash or per load seemed to get smaller and smaller because they were concentrated. Well, there was a direct savings because they said, hey, why are we shipping product with so much water in it? Why don't we concentrate and it and wait mm-hmm. and, and ship? And so it, it, it's it's a, you know, if you, if you put or keep in mind the design of the product and the packaging into, uh, or, or keep in mind the logistics and transportation into the design of the product, the, the company will win and, and, uh, and at the end the consumer will win too. Yeah, and I guess that also brings us to a point on manufacturing, right? Like you can grab raw materials from certain vendors, but actually put the product together, you may be closer to home depending on where your target market is. And so the transportation costs will be different because you're not shipping the finished product that might be heavier um, from a further distance. Oh, that's a whole different Anyways. topic. I <laughs> okay. mean, you're talking about uh, insourcing versus outsourcing, <laughs> and, or, or sorry, offshoring versus inshoring. Okay, maybe we'll and get that's, to that that's next That's an interesting episode. topic in itself. <laughs> next time, Paul, next, next time. time. All right, let's concentrate. So why are free trade agreements throwing companies for a loop? Well, free trade agreements... I mean, you can imagine it's, you know, 1994 for Canada was a significant year with the implementation of NAFTA. Uh, with me being in the industry uh, for almost 20 years, you'd be surprised at how how ignorant some people are, specifically, I mean, I hate to say this, specifically uh, shippers uh, in the United States. And, the, you know, they're not accustomed to dealing with the border and they don't understand what are the ramifications of NAFTA. 
On the other side, when you're the importer, well, the, the certificate of origin is exceptionally important because you're you you are declaring on that on that certificate of origin that your goods qualify under the free trade agreement, the NAFTA free trade agreement, and you wouldn't have to pay duty on that specific product, which could be huge because those duty rates, and we've talked about this before, can be like upwards of eighteen percent, absolutely, and higher. That's right. That's a lot to the bottom line. Oh, absolutely, and and you know companies are complaining. About about margins shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And I think, and if they don't factor in what are the, um, what are the, not the regulations, but what is the environment from a trade policy point of view, and have that incorporated into their buying and their procurement, I mean, they're just undoing themselves because I can assure you their competitors are paying attention to what the trade agreements are in other countries. Canada, Canada right now, I mean, I'm not sure what's going on with TPP, but uh, Canada is engaged with over 40 countries when it comes to free trade agreements. So in the future, going forward, uh, certificates of origin and, and managing free trade agreements is going to be exceptionally important in industries where um, margins might be shrinking. And that difference of having a well-managed compliance department uh, would make the difference between profitability and, and you losing your shirt. Yeah, and just for our audience sake, we are the day before the inauguration. So when we're talking about free trade agreements, we're not entirely sure what's going to be happening and coming down the pipe. Um, but, you know, it's definitely happening tomorrow. Well, we hope he makes America great again. Well, I'm, that's all I'm going to say. Absolutely. Oh, we're not, we're oh, not going to we're not going to get into politics here, but just so you know what day we're t we're, you know, sitting in the studio talking to you. But again, you know, keep on top of it. Right. With the changes, with the inauguration tomorrow, with us not really knowing us as Canadians and Americans, not really knowing what's going to happen with the TPP or NAFTA. I mean, it's keeping informed, staying on top of it um, and making sure that you get you're getting all the right information, I think, is really going to be key, especially, you know, within the next few months or year. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next question is, what are any use provisions and how could this be a blind spot into a company? Well, um, end use provisions are one of those uh, one of those items that you'd find in the tariff where they're specific to either industries or end uses. And when I say end uses, you're bringing your product or importing your product in for a specific purpose. Um, I have I have, I myself have worked with um, some importers that their their business was such that they were importing components uh, for manufacturing and they because of the end use years and years hadn't changed um, they never really thought about end use provisions and then they happened to stumble upon getting a contract with a with a large um, uh, for a lar um, uh, for a city I believe it was and they started into an industry that they weren't necessarily familiar with, but they, it was a perfect fit. Specifically in, in uh, chapter 99, there are end use provisions for end, for end uses. In this case, uh, in this case, this was an example of uh, a company who was importing components for the manufacturing of, I believe it was um, uh, buses and public transit. Um, they had been in. They had been importing components for the construction industry, um, as an example. 
and they never utilized the end use provision in the past. But once they started manufacturing and importing these components for the, uh, for the uh, uh, public transit, they were unaware of the end use provisions. Um, and I'm not sure what type of relationship they had with their previous broker, but when I had brought them on as a client, uh, one of the first things that I did was uh, look at their tariff base, identify some opportunities from a duty perspective, run it by my compliance services team, and see if there was a valid case to be able to get not only a duty recovery, but going forward, those trend, those the landed cost of any future product with an advanced ruling, we're able to reduce the cost of their of the product that we're bringing in. Well, and I think that brings us to another point: is that know your HS code, make sure or HTS code, um, make sure that it's correct because it can mean the difference between five percent duty and you know ten percent duty, eighteen percent like. That's, you know, either it's going to hurt you down the road where you haven't been paying enough and you're going to have to, you know, compensate for that if you ever get audited, or you're paying too much, you're never going to get that back, it's going to hurt your bottom line and make you uncompetitive. So there's a couple of things I think here um, as far as compliance, but so I guess who would you seek advice on this from? I'm, I'm guessing the customs broker. Yeah, and you know, it, depending on the company, some companies, um, there's, uh, they utilize, a, and it, it all depends on their compliance strategy. So if they feel like they have the internal resources to stay on top of these, uh, of these end uses or these changes in use, um, absolutely, it makes perfect sense. If not, they really should be working with a customs broker. And in, in the case that I gave you, it was actually us that identified the opportunity to the client and mm-hmm. say, hey, I think you've been overpaying duty for way too many years. And in that case, we were able to go back four years once we found we found uh, and identified uh, the opportunity uh, and filed the advance ruling. We were able to go back four years and we were able to get back, I think it was over $300,000 in overpaid duty Amazing. In, a, in a four year span. Yeah. Um, I, and, I, and just to add one point, you had mentioned, you know, specifically know, knowing about your HS. I, you know, people have a misconception that duty or the duty rate, um, you know, it, the only criteria to know what a duty, the duty rate would be, would be the HS or the country of origin. You know, some people have that misconception. Hey, if I know those two things, I'll know what the duty rate is. Well, that's not the case, especially with this end use provision. Yeah. And um, so I guess, you know, the advice kind of is keep the communication lines open with your broker. Right? And make because sure you, that your broker knows you, about your and business. And ask issue. these questions, yeah, yeah. and um, be open to compliance. Absolutely. Because I think that that's a big hurdle of, as well is that, you know, companies aren't necessarily open to that compliance component. And I'm going to add one more thing here. And this is kind of a, like not off topic, but kind of takes away from the end use provision in HS codes. But when you're uh, buying from overseas and you're buying prepaid, and you need to make sure that your FOB charges are separated on a commercial invoice. There are too many instances where people are paying duties and taxes on the FOB charges because the shipper overseas is um, including it in the cost of the product on the commercial invoice. And that's a huge blind spot Yeah, I mean, because the- you don't need to be paying duties and taxes on that. Well, yeah, I mean, just anecdotally, um, let's say that it costs you... $500 to transport your goods um, intra 
Shanghai to get it to the port, right? And you got FOB or technically FCA terms. Um, depending on the commodity, it makes it can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So instead of uh, instead of paying, um, you, you know, if if you didn't factor in those FOB charges, as they call it. Um, and on a commodity that has a duty rate like apparel of, of 18%, 18. Yeah. well, you're paying duty on 18% of $500 for no reason. So yeah. it, it's not one of the ones that I mentioned, but it's significant. It really Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, I guess the last one on the list you mentioned was Solus. So how can companies better use um, Solus so that they can... Um, uh, reduce the blind spots in their supply First chain. First of all, why doesn't oh. he explain to us what Solus is? Ah, yes. That's a good one, Nick. Good catch. Good job, Nick. Good job. Uh, Solus, uh, Solus was a piece of legislation that was passed um, by the International Marine, uh, Maritime Organization and it amended it amended the the what's called the Sa um, Safety of Life at Sea Convention, so SOLAS. And it requires as a condition for loading a packed container onto a ship for, for export that the container has a verified weight. The reason that th this all came about is because containers with unverified weight is really a risk at sea for, for any ship that's crossing the maritime. You, you probably don't hear it much, but every year, as I understand it, somewhere between five to ten steamship lines sink to the bottom of them in the ocean. They every do? Year. Every five year. Five to ten? Five to ten at least. And Why is might... this not making the news? Five to ten containers? What? Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Um, and you don't really hear about it much in the radio or in the news per se because, I mean, usually it doesn't have a lot of – you know, loss of life or anything. It's just products floating in the bottom of the ocean. That's but, a lot of cash. But it is an exceptional amount of money and value of products and commodities. So uh, the insurance companies, you know, they, they fight amongst themselves in terms of who's responsible for what. Uh, for what. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. So as a result of a lot of the incidences with, you know, with um, – Having uh, having cargo loaded onto containers that are uh, what it would be deemed as unsafe because maybe they might be top loaded and such, uh, the root cause, as they discovered, was inaccurate or un unverified weights. So they used this amendment to enforce uh, importers and shippers to verify weights before they can put it on an ocean container. Oh. Yeah, so that we don't have, like, another episode of Gilligan's Island. So I guess the best way that they can utilize it is to make sure that they're covered under Solus, they have the right weights in place so that their containers aren't on one of those vessels yeah. that might... I think Solus, to be honest, I, I, I think to, to specifically focus on Solus would probably not do... Um, not do my suggestion enough justice. It's really about regulation and okay. being aware of changes and regulations as it pertains to your industry on the movement of goods. Solus is an example of that. How do you keep on top of that though? Like is that through, 
Is that through your logistics provider? Are there sources that people can go to? Um, well, if you're a Canadian institute, SIFA uh, uh, is an example of, um, of an organization that likes to inform all of its uh, members about changes in legislation and industry. And really, your logistics partner should be really aware of all these changes and regulations that are going to impact that and let you know. So, How can companies overcome these missing components and what are your top five tips on checking blind spots in supply chain? Well, that's an interesting question. So, um, so in terms of identifying missing, the, the missing components, I think the first step is, is really putting a, a greater emphasis on the awareness of what your supply chain is. Uh, and and hearing it on a ground level uh, in terms of the boots on the ground. So as an example, if you wanted to uh, put a greater emphasis on utilization uh, in long haul shipments for your uh, your truck freight or your ocean freight, um, it, it's a good idea to you know literally look at your cargo and see how your suppliers are uh, packaging your cargo. If you are part of an LCL, if you're moving a lot of LCL shipments, leverage the expertise of your of your freight forwarders and logistics providers to try to increase the utilization rates on your ocean containers. When you're looking at um, when you're looking at trucks, alternatively, you know, putting procedures in place and actually implementing them and following through uh, on a dock level to make sure that when you know, that you're not building pallets that are, you know, shaped like a pyramid. Um, and then being more cognizant of the empty space that you're being charged. And then using using your account, your invoices that you get from your transportation to really kind of uh, see where your hotspots or where your blind spots are. That's that's actually pretty important. Um, the other, the other thing to think about from a courier perspective is to, is to obviously be aware of what your carton sizes are and w- what the, the average shipment weight would be. Um, and please note what your cube factor is. And the cube factor is, is the, the number that's assigned to, for example, on a per cubic foot basis. Yeah, and how your packaging is affecting the weight, how it's affecting the dimensional weight. You know, yeah. just just being mindful, I think, really. Being mindful and, and even monitoring it because, a, you know, especially if you're a, a retailer that has a lot of mixed products where things are of a, a, a wide range of, of different commodities with different densities, well, you know, you should probably have a study or, or monitor what your average density is of your product on a regular basis. And if, if for example, you were originally shipping out um, you know, your, your sales were doing well in terms of like uh, dumbbells. And then, you know, several months later, you've got a super sale on pillows and you're using the same freight forward or same carriers. You might have an issue when it comes to cube weight and what your transportation costs would be. Uh, when it relates to, to free trade, I think, I think that's related to having a, a strong trade compliance program and access to expertise as it pertains to free trade agreements. Uh, the solicitation of free trade agreements or, or specifically certificates of origin uh, can be done internally. If a company doesn't have resources to do that, 
Well, any half-decent customs broker should probably have a program that solicits uh, at, at, at least NAFTA certificates of origin, but they really should be doing uh, free trade agreement solicitation yeah, as well. But on that note, I mean, and, and the note of the HS codes and HTS codes, I mean, you really know your business. You know your business, you know your product, you know your components, you know what's going on. So... I would really urge companies to take a look at the compliance factor, really take some time to take a look at the free trade agreements. I mean, if that means that currently you're, you're buying product from one country, but it would be more beneficial to buy another one under, under one of the free trade agreements that would pertain to you and your company. I mean, that's just, you know, great business, you mm -hmm. know, really take advantage of that and, and take a look at it. Yeah, and I mean, even with the some of the programs that I've talked about, we're not specifically talking about how if uh, the free trade agreement or the certificate of origin is um, uh, is appropriate or or anything like that. We're, you know, we can't. We're not verifying that information. Um, if it's applicable. It's really about the solicitation of the certificates of origin because it's under the assumption that you as the importer have already done their due diligence to try to make sure that that product does qualify under NAFTA. Right. So just quickly before we end off, where do you see supply chain in the next five to 10 years and what are the challenges? Well, I mean, for, for me, um, you know, compared to some of your other, uh, some some of your other interviewers or interviewees, I should say, uh, I've always been on the transportation and logistics side. So the the perspective that I have is a little bit different in that case. But from what I can tell and from what I can see, you know, we're in an industry that uh, really does have to pull up their socks a bit uh, from a technological point of view. Uh, we, as an industry, uh, transportation and logistics. Um, I don't think we've necessarily embraced technology, um, and there are going to be disruptors out there. Companies oh, yeah. like. Do you believe there's going to be drones? Oh, I love my drones. <laughs> I, I want to see boxes like come to my house from the sky. I was I was talking to somebody about that, and there are these mats that you put out, outside and I'll just front lay door. it on the mat. No, 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 outside the front door, and you if for returns. And you put the box on the mat, and the drone comes directly to the mat and like picks it up and takes it back. Wow! I've looked awesome. into this more for you, Nick. I, you know, I, I have your back. I'm telling you, the moment that there's a lot of drones flying overhead, I'm going to be the first to buy one of those like BB guns oh, or whatever. I'm going to change and I'm occupations. I'm just painting them off in the sky. I'm, I'm going to get a whole bunch I'm, of new stuff. I'm going to start to like change my. <laughs> occupation and I'm going to be a captain of one of these drones. Oh, excellent. It's going to be like a captain. A captain. So like a holding the remote control. I'm going to be <laughs> holding that remote control. You could wave to me. It'd be like, Sarah, yeah, you want to step outside? Well, you got a we box talking, coming your way. We were talking about weather. And apparently these things can do everything in They're all sorts all, of weather. They got gyroscopes Even in gusto and stuff. winds. Yeah, like, no. It they, pushes against the wind and they, makes sure it gets to the desk. They will correct themselves. I love them things. Oh, drones. They anyway, make me so sorry, happy. Sorry, Paul. We no, no, no. Thank you, Amazon, for giving I, me this. I'm not help. a, I, I mean, uh, yeah. I'm not a big fan of the drone idea. I don't think it has enough security for me. 
But where do I see it? I, you know, I, I think I think where I see from a technological point of view is a better communication of between the people that have freight to the people that can move the freight. And you're already seeing that with uh, with services like Uber, for example. And there are already websites that are um, trying to champion a marketplace for logistics and transportation, be it truck or ocean or air. There are disruptors just waiting. Absolutely, they're they're all out yeah. there waiting in the waiting in the weeds just waiting to pounce on competitors that aren't ready for it's it. It's exciting. It's exciting. And, and we'll look forward to seeing that. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, be mindful and be open to compliance. So check out your blind spots in your supply chain and make sure you are taking full advantage of the tips that Paul has shared with us today. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Are you struggling to make the most out of your supply chain and keep your orders moving efficiently? IceCorp is your supply chain specialist, and they specialize in e-commerce, retail, and drop ship distribution. They will provide you with tailor-made solutions that will drive your business and sales forward. Get your free assessment. Visit them at icecorplogistics.com. Check out their learning center as they have some great free resources waiting for you. Join us next week when we interview one of our listeners and returning favorite guest, Sheena Repath from MSH District. You are not going to want to miss this one. We get into everything you need to know about designing your distribution. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, write us a review and tell us about it. We are your hosts, Nick and Sarah. This episode was produced by Mike Mazurik. Thanks for joining us, and remember, ship happens. Woo!